I read a story this week about a 14-foot bronze crucifix that was stolen some years ago. They didn't say how many years ago, but it was stolen from Calvary Cemetery in Little Rock, Arkansas. Evidently, it had stood at the entrance to the cemetery for more than 50 years. It was put there in 1930 by a Catholic bishop. Now, at the time it was stolen, it was valued at $10,000. The thieves cut it off at the base, took it, and it was never found. Police speculate that the thieves cut it into small pieces and told it, and uh, excuse me, sold it for scrap, and probably got about four hundred and fifty dollars for it. The point of that story: they obviously didn't realize the value of the cross, and that, of course, is a worldwide problem. It's It's a problem for many in the world who do not understand the value of the cross. And as the gospel writers relate the story of Jesus' crucifixion, the the theme that runs through so much of the detail is that of rejection. People did not see the value of Jesus, nor did they understand the value of his death. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that the message of the cross, what the cross stands for, is foolishness to many. Paul says that Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to Gentiles. It was true in the first century and I think it has been true in every generation since. Some of you might recall, gosh, it's been, been 25 years ago now, the rather infamous conference called Reimagining God. Ring a bell for any of you? <laughs> I saw a few nods, yeah. Um, it was sponsored by the World Council of Churches, 1994. 25 years ago, 2,200 people from 49 states and 27 countries gathered at at the Minneapolis Convention Center to reimagine God. It was sponsored by the World Council of Churches. There was a lot of money that was funneled into it by some of the mainline denominations. The conference called for a second reformation. And the result was some pretty radical, what some say, theological surgery on the historic church's doctrinal beliefs. Needless to say, all kinds of stuff hit the theological fans in the days following that conference. Here's what one observer wrote. It is most important to note that historic Christology was totally dismantled. Historically, what we believe about Jesus was totally dismantled. This writer says the target of the conference was the cross. It was expressed that Christian soteriology, that is what we believe about salvation, Christian soteriology promoted violence. A father killing his son is a formula for child abuse. 
And here's a quote from one of the presenters at that conference. For centuries, the church centered its faith around the cruel and violent death of Christ on the cross, sanctioning violence against the powerless in society. I can no longer worship in a theological context that depicts God as an abusive parent and Jesus as the obedient, trusting child. This violent theology encourages the violence of our streets and our nations. And here, in my opinion, is the icing on the cake. This quote. I don't think we need a theory of atonement at all. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff. We just need to listen to the God within. Now there's a great idea. Let's listen to the God within. Because history shows us that that works well. That cultures without Christ are fabulously successful in throwing off the sin nature and living in a way that demonstrates great love and esteem for all people, especially women, children, and the poor. Simply making life better for everyone, the God within. I'm sorry, did that seem a little facetious? Holy cow. I know. I have no patience. It's the chemo. I have no patience for those who are constantly looking for solutions to the human condition within that condition. Golly. Thank you. Dixie, we are. But there's such great hope. Such great hope. And, and that's, that's why we believe in the cross. There is there's great hope. The cross stands at the center of the Christian faith. It is gruesome. It is horrible. It is totally unattractive and absolutely necessary as the heart of the Christian faith. Those who want to do away with the cross and the importance of atonement, whatever their motivation might be, they are similar to those whom, according to the Apostle John, make God a liar. The cross is all about perfect sacrifice for sin, my sin, and your sin. To say that the cross is not necessary is a mockery of the holiness of God and the death of Jesus that takes away the sin of the world, and it mistakenly exalts the fallen condition of humanity. And these are all truths that we have heard from the old apostle in his first letter. We have learned that, that John is all about making the case for Jesus as the Son of God in the flesh. Why? Why have we said it was so important that Jesus appear in the flesh? Why is John so taken with Jesus in the flesh? Because it's that Jesus in the flesh who died in the flesh on that cross. And John stood there at the cross, recorded for us in his own gospel as an observer. He saw Jesus die. And I'm pretty convinced that in those 
those first days, those early days when John was much younger and, and he, he suffered through the horror of the crucifixion, I don't think that he necessarily connected all the dots. But after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came into his life at the promise of Jesus and began to teach John and the others all things about Jesus, reminding them about all that Jesus had said and all that Jesus had done, John's Christology began to come together. And he recognized the absolute necessity of God in the flesh making atonement for lost and broken people. And so he wrote this letter, as we have learned, to remind believers scattered throughout Asia Minor that that belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God come in the flesh is essential. It is is fundamental to Christian belief because of what that God-man, Jesus, did on the cross. The cross is not incidental to John at all. It is is the heart of faith. And so this morning we're going to look at just a few verses from the first half of chapter 5 as our text. And and John is nearing the end of his letter. You'll hear him restate some of the themes that he has given earlier. Belief that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is God's anointed one. And belief in Jesus means being born of God. It means that we become God's child, his children together. Love for God means Loving his children, and and John has hit that one hard because some of the the distractors and the false teachers uh, claim to have, as we've learned, knowledge of God and yet no respect at all for the human person of Jesus Christ as God's anointed one. No respect for his death on the cross, explaining in a way, disbelieving in it, and as a result not feeling a sense of obligation to the one who suffered for them, and then living out that obligation to other brothers and sisters in Christ. On the cross, on the cross, where your blood ran red and my sins washed white, I owe all to you. That is John. That should be everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that by the time we we come to the end of this morning, we will leave here with a sense of, I am so indebted to Jesus. We don't like that word debt as Americans because it's awful. You know, there's a lot more debt, and when we think of national debt, we, we just can't even get our mind around something that size. But debt to Jesus is a good thing. That sense of I owe him everything can motivate us to be people who are living with a sense of passion and awareness and desire to to bring Jesus into every dimension of the life that we live. That's 
That's John's heart. So he reminds us in our reading this morning of some of those themes, but he also adds a very significant reminder about the life and death of Jesus to, to keep the believers that he wants to encourage standing strong in their struggle against false teachers and commitment to living out the truth. It flows right out of what we learned last Sunday. Uh, we were, I hope, we left some of us in awe of the amazing love of God. A love, we said, that's like no other. A love that cannot be earned or lost. A love that never changes. And I, I hope you've had, those of you who are with us, I hope you've had some moments this week to reflect on that truth, that, that God loves us as his children right now and every moment of every day as much as he ever will. That's just true. Because it's a perfect love that is not based upon our actions and our merit. It's based upon his character. It's based on what he has chosen to do that flows out of who he is. John tells us God is love. And nothing you can do will ever change his love for you. The essence of his being is love. All that he thinks and does toward us is out of his great heart of love. And from that perfect loving heart comes the idea of redemption and the necessity of the cross. So let's, uh, let's put our text up on the screen this morning, Vic. Stand with me, brothers and sisters, and let's read these words from 1 John chapter 5. Again, you'll, you'll hear familiar themes, and then John moves towards uh, another important point for us. Here we go. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
my sisters and my brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. I have said to you a couple of different times that that John sees life as a follower of Jesus in, in pretty black and white terms. Those who believe in Jesus and, and a belief that, that, is, that is proven by the way that it is lived out in loving action toward others, which is in obedience to Christ. And that ties us into his idea of, of keeping God's commands. But for John, especially the love that God's people demonstrate for one another is significant because of the witness that it is for Jesus. And, and we've said that before. John is the, the writer of the gospel who picks up those themes. Jesus saying, people will know you're my followers by the way you love one another. And his prayer that, that the Father would, would bring his followers into oneness and unity so that the world would know that the Father had sent the Son John feels that it's the proof of who the children of God are to to believe in Jesus and live out what we believe in love towards others as God has loved us in him. To be a child of God, for John is a member of God's family. He celebrates that, called out of the world and standing against the world. And, And children of God, John says, have overcome the world. By their faith in Jesus Christ, there's that black and that white. We just heard it in the text that there are those who are in Christ, there are those who are in the world. You're with Christ or you're without Christ. And, and, and it's, it's a matter of, of whose side in the world you are on. Are you, are you with Jesus or are you against Jesus? And overcoming is a language of victory. It points to a battle that has been won, but it it hasn't been won by us. It's it's won for us in Jesus. And that, of course, brings us to, to the cross. Vic, can we put up that next slide? Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only but by water and blood. I want you to talk with your neighbor about that last phrase. What do you think John is talking about with the words water and blood? See what your neighbor thinks. Talk about it for just a couple of minutes. All right. True confessions. Most commentators see this as the most unclear statement in all of John's letter. That was fair of me, don't you think, to ask you this question? Because he doesn't explain it. But go ahead. What? Take a stab. It's always a stab. Yeah. Okay. Good. I like that. I like that. Definitely. What else? Chime in. Birth and death. Okay. That's some good theology there, Kathy. <laughs> yeah. That. Interestingly enough, and, and I, you know, I didn't cue her or pay her to say that, that's, she, she's thinking of baptism and death, crucifixion. And that's what most commentators think 
John is, is referring to there, that doesn't mean that the other symbolism isn't rich and that we are not reminded of that. But, but commentators tend to think that those words, water and blood, probably meant something to the original hearers just by linking those two things together, water and blood. We, we don't have any clue as to how they, they might have understood that, but they think of it as sort of like inside language. Some like the idea of water and blood referring to uh, the sacraments of, of baptism and communion. That's another fairly prominent translation. I think, I think I struggle with that one just a little bit because it's John, John's concern in this letter. Remember, we always try to be honest with the larger context. The context of the letter is not church tradition or church ritual. It is, it is defense of the faith. It is the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's John's driving concern in this letter. It's the incarnation. It's the reality, the real life of Jesus, the real death of Jesus. And so for most commentators, and, and I, I find myself kind of moving in that same direction, it's, it's the idea of baptism, which in the first century was, was clearly understood, especially in, in Jewish circles, as an identifier, uh, as, as, a, as a follower's commitment, if you will. It was, it was an initiation. And, so, um, and, and we believe that today, to some extent, regardless of how we might vary on some of our theological perspectives, we understand that baptism is an identification with Christ, that those who, who receive the washing of the water symbolically are identifying themselves with, with Christ and his life and, and the waters that, that he went through. So baptism, in this sense, tends to be sort of seen or understood, again, by, by the majority of folks who, who read this text as that stamp of approval by the Father upon Jesus at his baptism. We hear the voice of the Father when he comes up out of the waters. This is the Son whom I love. Listen to Him. And we have always understood that as the initiation of His ministry. We know little about Jesus' life up until that point. And then He appears for baptism. John doesn't want to do it. Jesus says you have to so that all righteousness can be fulfilled. That is the plan of God. And we often choose to understand that as the initiation, the stamp of the Father's approval upon this man, Jesus, for the mission and the ministry that he is about to set off on. And then, of course, the, the blood is then seen as the crucifixion, that, that the fulfillment of the mission for which Jesus came happened on the cross. The idea of, of anointed for mission in baptism fulfilled mission in the crucifixion. I think, I think it makes sense when we consider John's concern of Jesus in the flesh, life and, and death. Does, does, that, does that make sense? Does that ring true for you to some degree? Um, 
And, and the reason that I've, that I've keyed in on that is because of the death of Jesus, the crucifixion. Um, we know that, that there, was, there was thinking by some in that day that Jesus was born a common man, anointed by the Father at his baptism as the Christ. But, but then they, they departed from what we understand as historical Christology uh, they, by saying that, that the anointment of God, the blessing of God, departed from Jesus before his crucifixion. Uh, a sect of belief that began to surface uh, along around the, the first of the second century. Uh, this made Jesus, if I can say it this way, an example of how to live, but not a savior. Because those who deny their sin don't understand its consequences and don't have any need of a Savior. Remember, that takes us back to the first and second chapters of John's letter. Those who, who claim to be without sin, they lie. There is no truth in them. Uh, John at one point refers to them as children of the devil. Here's what I think. Nobody likes the idea of needing a Savior. And I think that's prevalent in our culture. We've said this before, that to talk about a savior implies that something needs saving. And it gets pretty personal when we start talking about someone who died on a cross because I'm sinful. What do you mean I'm sinful? Don't talk to me about my sin. I live a good life. I'm good to people. I, I give and I care for others. And, and it's... It's that standard by which we measure ourselves or which humanity measures itself. Well, I'm not as bad as this person. Yeah, I'm not as good as this one, but I'm better than this one. Oh, we don't like the idea of, of a savior. It's, it's troubling language. You might remember 2006, Madonna's controversial world tour titled Confessions as part of the show. She staged a mock crucifixion wearing a crown of thorns and strapped to a mirrored cross. Well, not surprisingly, there were a few people who reacted to that. She answered her critics through a statement released following the tour's final show and said this, There seems to be many misinterpretations about my appearance on the cross, and I want to explain it myself once and for all. It is no different than a person wearing a cross or taking up the cross, as it says in the Bible. My performance is neither anti-Christian, sacrilegious, or blasphemous. Rather, it is my plea to the audience to encourage mankind to help one another and to see the world as a unified whole. She later added, I believe in my heart that if Jesus were alive today, he would be doing the same thing. No, no, he would not. What Jesus would be doing is encouraging humanity to repent and turn to God as he did prior to his crucifixion in the first century because Jesus knew that the only hope for any kind of unified whole is to be made whole through his sacrifice that brings the redeemed into relationship with God. Father, Son, and Spirit. And whether we like it or not, we must, we must make much of the crucifixion. 
It is in the death of Jesus, John says, we find life. Life is found in God's Son. It is atonement. It is the removal of our sinful offense before God. And we must never dial back the gruesome reality of the crucifixion in order to make it less offensive and more attractive. Remember, as I mentioned a little while ago, John was an eyewitness to the crucifixion. He records his presence in his gospel with these words. We read it in John 19. He says, He who saw this, referring to himself, has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth. I've chosen to read a few things for you this morning from a horrific account of the crucifixion. It's called, a, it's called the crucifixion, a medical account. Some of you have probably read this or parts of it uh, by a man named C. Truman Davis. He was a doctor, wrote this in the 60s. It was originally published, is what I found uh, online, in the Arizona Medical Association's uh, journal called the Arizona Medicine. He published this. He says, and I'm just going to read parts of it. Um, I, I offer you the invitation that I would send this entire thing to you if you would like to have the whole thing and read it. Um, it's awful. I think it's important because it reminds us of the seriousness of what John is talking about. Anyway, Dr. Truman's intent, he says, I, I'll discuss some of the physical aspects of the passion or suffering of Jesus Christ. So he starts with him in the garden, follows through his trial and the beating and his path along the Via Dolorosa to finally his last hours on the cross. Um, I'm not going to read it all. I want to just uh, highlight a few the physical passion of the Christ, says Dr. Davis, begins in Gethsemane. Of the many aspects of this initial suffering, I will only discuss the one of physiological interest, and that is the bloody sweat. He says, though very rare, the phenomenon of hematidrosis, I think is how you say it, hematidrosis, or bloody sweat, is well documented. I looked it up on Google, it, it really is. Under great emotional stress, tiny capillaries in the sweat glands can break, thus mixing blood with sweat. This process alone could have produced a marked weakness and a possible shock. Jesus, fully human, anticipating the, the horror of the cross and all that lie ahead was in such agony and anticipating that, that real physical pain to his real physical body, that he sweat drops of blood. Jump down to preparations for the scourging are carried out. He says the prisoner is stripped of his clothing, and his hands are tied to a post above his head. It is doubtful whether the Romans made any attempt to follow the Jewish law in this matter of scourging. The Jews had an ancient law prohibiting more than 40 lashes. The Pharisees, always making sure that the law was strictly kept, insisted that only 39 lashes be given. In case of a miscount, they were 
sure of remaining within the law. The Roman legionnaire steps forward with the flagrum in his hand, the whip. This is a short whip consisting of several heavy leather thongs with two small balls of lead attached near the ends of each one. The heavy whip is brought down with a full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, his back, and his legs. At first, the heavy thongs cut through the skin only, and then as the blood continues, they are cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and the veins of the skin, finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles. They talk about putting Jesus' garments back on, and he points out how that would have been a torturous thing, given all of the blood that was, that was on his body and then sticking to the clothes. And then I jump down to the prisoner is again stripped, off, stripped of his clothes, except for a loincloth, which is allowed the Jews. The, the crucifixion begins. Most, most criminals were crucified naked. The crucifixion begins. Jesus is offered wine mixed with myrrh, a mild... Uh, analgesic mixture. He refuses the drink. Uh, Simon is ordered to place the cross on the ground. Uh, Simon, who was carrying the, uh, the, the cross piece on his shoulders. Uh, Jesus is thrown backward with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of his wrist. And he drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deeply into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexibility and movement. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down. A nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed. The victim is now crucified. And as he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in the wrists, Excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. At this point, another phenomenon occurs. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. And with these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, Pectoral muscles are paralyzed and the intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to, to get even one short breath. And finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and, and in the bloodstream and the cramps partially subside. He's able to push himself upward to exhale and to bring in life-giving oxygen. It was undoubtedly during these periods that he uttered the seven short sentences which are recorded. The first looking down at the Roman soldier. They were throwing dice for his garments. And he said to his father, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. I'm not going to read any more than that, my friends, but to... To explain away the crucifixion is to question the plan of God. It occurred to me this week as I was thinking, in the sovereignty of our God, could he 
Could he not have had Jesus arrive at some other point in history? Yeah, probably he could have. But God, in his sovereignty, chose that point. Chose that point when his people were living under the oppression of the Roman Empire that came up with that heinous form of crucifixion. God, in his sovereignty, knowing that that would be the death that his son in human form would suffer so that we might see great love on that cross for lost and dying people. I know that this is just ugly hard, but it seemed so appropriate to read it this morning because if you're like me, words and and truths that we know and and I I, I realize I, I express this to you often they lose their meaning and we become I think if I can say it this way too comfortable with the execution of Jesus his death on the cross yep Jesus died for my sins on the cross oh but how he died. But how he died. And so we tie that back to what we learned last week, that God is love. And suddenly we are faced with this, this glaring truth that that great God of love loved broken and lost people so much that in love with the agreement of the Son and the work of the Holy Spirit put into effect this horrific scene so that we might have life. In the Son is life to those who believe in His name, says John. My prayer is that we will go from here today perhaps more mindful than we've been in a long time of the reality of the crucifixion and what exactly Jesus suffered for our life. Praise team, come on up and I'm going to pray for us. God, our Father, we we look again just briefly this morning at, at the reality of what Jesus did for us and, and, and somehow just hearing the, the physiology of it makes it a whole lot more serious and a whole lot more significant than perhaps it has been to us in a while. We thank you 
that it was the cross of Jesus, perfect sacrifice for our sin, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that purchased life for us. We live in a, in a world and a culture that doesn't appreciate the cross. We ask, oh God, that our love and our appreciation for the cross would be influential on others as we live our lives in the shadow of that. May we be indebted to you, Lord Jesus Christ, for what you did for us on the cross. And Holy Spirit, you who live in us, you live in us for that very reason, to remind us of who Jesus was and what he has done and the life that he has called us to so that he might be made known and glorified in all that we do and all that we say. May that be truer than ever before as we walk out of this place today with the, the absolute horror and ugliness and yet amazing and mysterious, beautiful necessity of the cross and that image in our minds, we pray. For the glory of Jesus, amen.